It's the SNL Hall of Fame Podcast. With your host, Jamie Dew. Chief Librarian, Thomas Senna. And featuring, Matt Ardill. And now, Curator of the Hall. Jamie Dew. Oh boy. I hope you are strapped in and ready to go because we have an absolute screamer for you today. But before we go any further, I'd like to ask you all a favor. Please wipe your feet before entering the hallowed ground of the Hall of Fame. You've got autumn filth all over the bottom of your shoes. We don't want that in here. Instead, we want great discussions about great performances in and around Studio 8H in New York City. That's right. We're talking about the best of the best on Saturday Night Live. And this week is no exception, as Thomas Senna is joined by Justin Renwick to have a titillating discussion about Elvis Costello. Now, for many of you, the musical guest portion of the show might be a time to get up and grab a snack or take a pee. But for me, I think back to some of those performances that moved me in a way that I hadn't been moved before by Saturday Night Live. Yes, there are sketches that have stuck with me through the years, but there are also really tremendous musical performances that have stuck with me through the years. Most recently, I think of Phoebe Bridgers appearing on SNL and that performance captivated me in a way that made me collect her discography and really explore more about the artist, Phoebe Bridgers. Uh, in the past, I, I was able to discover Vampire Weekend through Saturday Night Live. I was able to discover The Counting Crows through Saturday Night Live. I was, I was able to see one of my favorite bands, Faith No More, play and watched Mike Patton as he went absolutely berserk and climbed up inside the fan. These are moments that make Saturday Night Live special, and they are contributed by the musical guests who should be given equal billing to a certain degree to some of the comedy sketches. After all, the musical guest is almost one-ninth of the show. They're given almost 10 full minutes of a after commercials 65 minute program now we haven't seen this reflected in the voting so far as last year both nirvana and neil young were dropped off the ballot for not achieving the minimum number of votes required to stay on the ballot it's only five percent folks they didn't receive five percent of the vote neil freaking young Nur freaking Vana. So what I will tell you is there are still some tremendous musical guests to come this year that we'll be discussing. And there were some tremendous musical guests last year that we discussed. I implore you to go back and give those a listen and really consider, you know, the entire tapestry that is SNL and the colors 
that the musical guests make in that tapestry. They are important. They are a big part of the show, and I would like to see that reflected in the vote. I'll get off my soapbox now. Speaking of voting, have you registered to vote yet? This year we're doing things a little differently, and the expectation will be that you register to vote so that I can send you your ballot when the time comes, and it'll be easy peasy lemon squeezy. All you need to do is go to snlhalloffame.com, snlhof.com, and click the register to vote button, and you'll be all set, ready to go. Speaking of ready to go, it's probably time that we unleashed our secret weapon, Matt Ardill, to uh, give us some minutiae about Mr. Costello. Matt, how are you doing? Good, thanks. I'm good. Thanks, Jamie. Uh, gl- glad to be here. This is one of my favorite musicians that we're talking about today, Elvis Costello, a.k.a. Declan Patrick McManus, uh, D.P. Costello, The Imposter, Little Hands of Concrete, Napoleon Dynamite, Howard Coward, Mac McManus, Declan Patrick, Pippi Ma- Go Mary Buttons, uh, according to uh, Stephen Colbert. Uh, he's a he's a man of many names. What and great talent! Yeah, he is. I did not know that. Yeah, well, he, he's sort of played into that in his early punk career. He played into that sort of like David Bowie uh, vibe of of character driven stuff. Uh, so, uh, yeah, he his his dad was actually a musician as well. Um, so, and he 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 went by uh, Day Costello. Um, to and his it's interesting because like you know, Elvis was born in you know 1959. One of five siblings comes from a musical family. Um, but early in his career, he uh had he people thought he was actually his father pretending to be younger to cash in on the punk rock movement. So like he looked so much like his dad, and he had that sort of very old fashioned. Uh, look to to him early in the, his career in this era when he did Saturday Night Live. Um, yeah, I mean his first appearance was in uh, uh, in the season three episode eight, December seventeenth, nineteen seventy seven. That's the almost original cast. This is the 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 uh, second cast after Bill Murray had joined after Chevy had left. Um, and he was on a few times after that, including the 25th anniversary, um, the, uh, March in, on season 14, episode 15, uh, that's the early Mike Myers, uh, and Dana Carvey era when John Lovitz was on the cast. And then again, uh, a few years later in, uh, season 16, episode 20, uh, May 18th, 1991. Um, so this would be when the Chris's Farley and rock were on the cast. Um, so yeah, so he's done three regular episodes and one special episode, um, that where he's been, uh, a, a big part of it. I'm sure today's episode is going to talk about radio, radio, uh, the, the, and the controversy surrounding that, that moment, um, which is a interesting thing. I mean, he wasn't even supposed to be on the first episode. That's that's the that's one of the, the things. I don't know if they talk about that at all. 
I'm looking forward to hearing that. But uh, he was originally a fill-in for the Sex Pistols, who uh, shockingly couldn't get across the border into the United States. I wonder why. Well, there would have been no controversy had they shown up, I'm sure. (laughs) Yeah, you know, I'm sure that would have gone on without any any concern or worry. Uh, um, (laughs) Yeah. Um, yeah, so he, he, yeah, he's a terrific uh, performer. Um, you know, as, and as, as again, as Stephen Colbert described him, an older male Avril Lavigne, uh, but instead of singing about skateboarding, uh, sings about people dying in shipyards. So he, he's, <laughs> he's, uh, yeah, he's a very talented guy. He's got a great sense of humor. Um, and, uh, I mean, he's he's done so much. He's just done so many incredible things. Like, uh, he's been in the Spy Who Shagged Me, so that's another uh, SNL connection. Um, Spice World, uh, Joe Strummer's film Straight to Hell, um, and, and I mean, he grew up. I mean, he grew up around music. His his mother worked in a record store importing vinyl in the in the the sixties and seventies, uh, and her regular customers were Mick Jagger and uh, Peter Green from Fleetwood Mac. So uh, it it, it kind of comes full circle because I mean, he's even been on um, The Simpsons, uh, and he was on Simps- uh, Simpsons episode with Mick Jagger. Uh, you know, and that's a show that has a lot of connection to SNL with writers going back and forth. Um, so yeah, he's a, an interesting character and I'm looking here forward to hearing more, more about him on the, on the episode. Me too. So why don't we just, uh, jump right into that then? Sounds great. Okay. This is Thomas Senna in conversation with Justin Renwick. Take it away. some Elvis Costello today. Justin, thank you so much. Thank you again for having me. It's uh, lovely to be a repeat guest. I enjoy it very much. Yeah, sure thing. Of course, yeah, you were in season one, so we're so glad to have you back. And uh, so many SNL fans know about the incident involving Elvis Costello in season three, but can you talk about where Elvis Costello was in his career and what was going on kind of leading up to that first SNL appearance in 1977? His father was a lounge singer, a singer with a, a group called the Joe Loss Orchestra. So Elvis, or Declan McManus as he was born, lived a uh, music showbiz life basically growing up and you know, f- followed his father around to recording sessions, got to meet the Beatles when he was a kid. So the fact, you know, it was everything was railroading him towards a career in uh, music, but more importantly, he had this incredible gift for songwriting and melody. And had been in bands, had, uh, he had a folk duo in the early 70s, uh, and then he became part of what's known as the pub rock scene in England. To give you a, a very quick rundown, an American band went over to England to record an album, everything fell apart, and it's like, we need to make some money, so let's go play in pubs, and they were playing basically, you know, sort of 50s and 60s rock and roll, which was the complete opposite of what was happening in the music business in England and America at the time, where everything was, you know, progressive rock and 10-minute organ solos and things like that. They were taking things back to basics, and it's really caught on 
And that's where people like Nick Lowe came from, uh, Ian Dury and the Blockheads. Joe Strummer was in a band called the 101ers before he was with The Clash. There's, there's you know, thousands, lot, lot, lots of bands I could talk about, but we'll try to stay on topic here. Uh, Elvis Costello's band was called Flip City and sort of fit that vein. Elvis was a big, uh, was also a big like Steely Dan fan and you know, I wouldn't say obscure, but lesser known American singers like, I mean, Randy Newman's very well known, but on a, a lower level, somebody like Jesse Winchester. If you've ever heard Jesse Winchester's first album, listen to it and then listen listen to My Aim is True. And the similarities are, are eerie. <laughs> he, t- he took a lot from that album and not to paint him as being a copyist or anything, but it's just, if you're going to steal from somebody, steal from Jesse Winchester. So Flip City breaks up. He's now playing under uh, D.P. Costello. Costello being his, I think it was his maternal grandmother's maiden name. DP was his initials, Declan Patrick McManus. And then he's working as a computer operator at uh, Elizabeth Arden in in, uh, London, outside of London, I believe, in case there's any London listeners or people from England that want to take me to task. No, it wasn't in London proper. (laughs) Couldn't tell you where it was, but that's not important. Anyway, working as a computer operator there, writing songs at night, you know, made a, a, a tape a home tape very quietly while his wife and uh, young son were, were sleeping, wound up sending it into a new upstart label called Stiff Records that had come out from a couple of guys that uh, managed probably the best known pub rock band, Dr. Feelgood, uh, basically a forerunner to punk, really. And people like Paul Weller, Joe Strummer were in the audiences for Dr. Feelgood shows and the roots are all there. And then, yeah, it winds up getting signed to Stiff Records has a backing band behind him called Clover to make his first album, which he's making on uh, sick days and weekends from his uh, his job and gets released, uh, starts selling very well in England, starts selling very well as an import in America. And then eventually he pulls a stunt where he was at uh, a hotel in London where CBS Records or Columbia was having their, uh, it was some kind of sales conference or whatever. And he wound up busking outside playing for wound up playing for Walter Yetnikoff, who was then the head of Columbia Records and managed to get a, a deal out of uh, Columbia with it in, in America. And it just all kind of went from there. Interesting story. He was uh, put in jail for, <laughs> for that really? for that busking. He was he was arrested and put in jail the night he was supposed to play it, uh, play a, a very important gig. And they managed to spring him out just in time. I guess that was a good investment on his part <laughs> to yeah. do some time so, for a night. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So he, um, you know, he had, he had that backing band and then needed to form his own band. So I think it was the spring and summer of uh, 77. He put together the attractions, three very, very seasoned. Uh, well, two, I say two very seasoned uh, players. The uh, piano player was a 19 year old music student, uh, Steve Naive, who happened to be amazing. Cause they, I mean, they st- still play together today, even, and um, attractions go over. They're touring America. So this is in the winter of 77. I'm sure. So they our, release our My Aim is True, right? So they release yep. My Aim is True uh, that summer uh, just to kind of position yep. ourselves to where we are. Right. So in the summer of 77, Elvis Costello and the attractions release My Aim is True. So that's the official first This album. was This was Elvis Costello by himself. But with uh, a backing band called Clover, who were from Marin okay. County and uh, the USA, were playing over in England. Uh, two of the members went on to be in Huey Lewis and the News, strangely enough. Yeah, and then uh, summer, late summer, the Watching the Detective singles, single comes out. And that has Steve from the Attractions on it and two members of Graham Parker's band, The Rumor, 
on uh, on the as the rhythm section. But then it was around that time that he put the band together and they started working on their second album, this year's model. And I think it was in the like probably the late fall, or maybe it hadn't come out in America yet. But the radio radio single, which is an important part of the story, mm-hmm. has now come out. So yeah, they're over in America. The attractions with Elvis touring relentlessly because that's how you break a band. And it's coming up on the Anyone Can Host show on Saturday Night Live, which happens to be their Christmas show. That was the contest they ran in the third season. Anyone can host, 25 words or less on a postcard, why you should host the show. They picked an 80-year-old grandmother from New Orleans named Miskel Spillman. Her musical guest was supposed to be the Sex Pistols. Fortunately, the Sex Pistols had legal or visa problems, couldn't get in the country. So um, Malcolm McLaren managed to get in touch with uh, Elvis's uh, manager and said, hey, this, they need a you know quote-unquote punk group. Elvis Costello will, will tell you he is the furthest thing from a punk. But given that he was coming up in that time and his sound had that sort of 60s veneer to it and back to basics kind of playing, obviously you've, you fall into that basket because you want to sell records. And then, uh, yeah, we they need a band. If we can arrange it, will you guys do the gig? And like, of course, you know, who doesn't want to play on uh, national television in America when you're trying to break an act? Yeah, so this was season three, episode eight, December 17th, 1977. And mm-hmm. the first song that they played, watching the detectives, you had mentioned that that was a single from Miami is True. It went off without a hitch. She is watching the detectives. And it was a really great performance, just did the song, and uh, so so yeah, Watching the Detectives was the first song that Elvis Costello performed on the show. Sounded great, no issues with, with anything. So what happened with that second song? Yeah, well, there's a few stories. So the second song, NBC said, we want you to play Less Than Zero, which had been his very first single in the US, which is a great song, but... I would say given the tempo of watching The Detectives, which is also a great song that I love, you'd want to, you know, show off the band's chops, play something a little heavier. So Radio Radio would have been a a good choice for me as well. It comes to his attention, Elvis Costello's attention, that NBC, who was owned by General Electric at the time, which owned a lot of radio stations, did not want Radio Radio being played because it was very critical of what had started at around that time with corporations buying radio stations, formalizing the playlists, basing them on focus groups. Basically, everyone is drawing from the same 50 songs. Let's be generous and say it's 50 songs. And now radio has become homogenized. It's not guys like it was in the 60s and early 70s, people like Tom Donahue or like the real Don Steele. Or I'm, I'm just mentioning American uh, DJs because they're the first ones that are coming to mind. And, there was plenty in uh, Bob McAdory here in Canada as well, but they would pick their own music. They would come up with their own playlist. They'd hear a song, say, hey, this is a great song. I'm going to play it. And it, you know, hopefully it catches on across the country and becomes a hit. So that wasn't happening anymore. And I would imagine there was some, there may have been some frustration on Elvis Costello's part because maybe he wasn't being played on the radio so much, but at least not at that time. Anyway, NBC doesn't want this song. You got to play less than zero. So then, you know, El- Elvis himself has talked about this a lot and I think like likes reliving the story because it's a very good one. The three things that I've heard and 
I know this one for a fact because I've heard it. Elvis says he um, he got the idea to abruptly change the song from uh, Jimi Hendrix experience uh, being on the uh, BBC in uh, early January of 69. It was a show, the the singer Lulu had her own variety show called, uh, was it called The Happening with Lulu, I think? Anyway, she wanted them to play uh, Hey Joe, which had been their first single, which at this point now, it came out in late 1966 and things were moving so fast in the 60s. This thing is like old hat by then. And I would imagine for the band, especially because, you know, you get tired of playing it every night. So he starts playing it and then he just, uh, we're not going to play this rubbish anymore. We're going to play this song by Cream. So they play Sunshine of Your Love because Cream had officially broken up uh, a couple months before. And that was on live TV. And of course, that was very frowned upon and got Hendrix into a little bit of trouble, but didn't really hurt his career one iota. And then the other story I've heard is that Costello obviously agreed to, or at least tacitly agreed to play Less Than Zero. And uh, apparently Dan Aykroyd told him he was a pussy <laughs> for listening to them. <laughs> so it could be oh, any and all of these that led him to start playing Less Than Zero and then cut it off abruptly and launch into Radio Radio. And of course, that throws the control room into complete chaos because it's like, we haven't blocked for this song. We don't know where to put the cameras. We don't know what he's going to do now. Is he going to swear? Is he going to strip? Right? And Lauren, especially, Lauren Michaels was uh, very displeased that he had not been informed of this. So that led to Costello being banned from the show. Yeah, and it could it could also mess up timing too. Maybe they had, they, they timed out that performance oh, yeah. to, and that would make... Uh, prompt a prompt a decision as far as what sketches to to run <laughs> you know after that so it was kind of a big deal if you're mm-hmm. running a tv show and something unexpected like that happens and it was an act of rebellion oh, yeah, I, and, and, I, and, and a punk kind of act on elvis costello's part i can completely see uh lauren michaels and nbc's position on it that was it was kind of a shitty thing to do but i'm also really glad he did it because it gave us this great moment of television and as much as I love Less Than Zero, their performance of Radio Radio is way beyond it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so he appeared on the show 11 seasons later in, in season 14. Yeah. Uh, but after Mary this Tyler first album, hosting. My Aim is True, he released 10 studio albums between that next SNL mm-hmm. appearance. So is there anything noteworthy for yeah. you about his output between about 78 and 88 around there? Well, full full disclosure, I'm a massive Elvis Costello fan. So, you know, My Aim is True is an unassailably great album. This year's model is as good or better. Armed Forces, it got even better. Then there was the awful barroom incident with Stephen Stills' band that kind of derailed his career in America. Uh, I won't go too deeply into it, but basically Elvis was a little drunk and was trying to be provocative and ironic and used a certain word. It begins with an N and ends with an R mm. to annoy the people he was talking to. And again, to be the use of irony. Unfortunately, that's not a word you should use if you're trying to be ironic. It's not a word you should use at all. And exactly. I think he's I think he's more than well aware of that. But anyway, it really, you know, album sales dropped off. Uh, radio, radio play disappeared. So he was a, a bit out in the wilderness but still released some great albums. The next album, Get Happy, was a, uh, whether it was conscious or not, was a, a nod to uh, old Motown and Stax. 
And then, yeah, by the time he was on um, the show that Mary Tyler Moore hosted, he hooked up with Paul McCartney, written some songs with him. Paul played some bass on uh, the album as well called Spike, which is a, a kind of a hodgepodge. Again, it's there's a lot of nods to like Cole Porter and uh, Rodgers and Hammerstein. And then some more more traditional Costello sounds, a lot of guests, Chrissy Hine from The Pretenders, Jim McGuinn from The Birds. I think Roy Orbison wound up covering one of the songs on the album as well. And anyway, Spike was sort of seen as a return to form, and he was on a new label now. He was with Warner Brothers. So I guess by then, the uh, the old wounds had healed, and um, yeah. Lauren didn't feel bad about inviting him back. And he had a hit record now with the song Veronica, which was, I think it was about his grandmother that he got the last name from. But that may have been a great grandmother as well. Anyway, okay, yeah. So the so Veronica is one of the songs that he he uh, he co-wrote with Paul McCartney. McCartney would play yep. bass in the studio version of Veronica. That was actually the first song. Oh, and you can you can hear it. Yeah, you can totally <laughs> so, hear it. Such a good bass player. Oh yeah, yeah. And that was the first song that 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 he performed uh, on on that episode of SNL. Do you Those were good performances. He performed yeah. Veronica and Let Him Dangle that night, and I really enjoyed yeah. those performances. What did you think? I'm the wrong guy to ask because I just love Elvis <laughs> Costello, but he is uh, an incredible performer and always, always has a quality band behind him. I've seen him numerous times. I've not enough times to have this really mean too much, but I've never seen a bad show. No, he's great. And it was also cool that, that G.E. Smith and the Saturday Night Live band performed with him uh, for both yeah, songs that night. That. Yeah, I like when they do that. G.E. Smith was out front and center right next to Elvis Costello. And I think there was just a lot of energy. Uh, I'm really happy that, that he returned after the band. And I was I was just kind of wondering, like, do you think that band was somewhat overblown or did it really take 11 years for kind of cooler yeah. heads to prevail? I think if he, if his continue, if his career had continued on, on an up trajectory, if there hadn't been the uh, Columbus barroom incident, he would have been on the show a lot sooner. Mm. He just he wasn't ha- he didn't have the uh, the uh, the push behind him that was there in the in the late seventies. Yeah, he he had a good interview uh, over the last few years with Howard Stern, and I heard him say uh, maybe it was really recently actually, and I heard him say that he never had any animosity toward SNL, and that he enjoyed himself, you know, when he returned. So I think you're right. I think mm-hmm. maybe he had a lot to do with just where he was in his career, as opposed to yeah. bad blood yeah. there. Well, so. Plus, like Lauren wasn't there between 1980 and 85, uh, but you know, Gene Domanian or Dick Ebersol didn't see, seem the need to bring him back either. So that could have been NBC's decision. But again. There were no hits, so there were really wasn't a reason to have him on the show. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And yeah. so after a couple of really great performances, again he performed Veronica and let him dangle. Barry had surrendered, he was under arrest. He gave Chris Craig a face of a quest. Craig shots in the miles, he took Ben his word. The prosecution claimed as the charge of Dangle. 
returned a little over two years later uh, in the season finale, actually, of season 16. That was in May. George Went. Of 1991. George Went uh, hosted that show. And that was about the same week he released Mighty Like a Rose. So it was an interesting Costello to me aesthetically. He had that full bush beard, long hair, sunglasses. And his first performance when he performed The Other Side of Summer, he reminded me of Forrest Gump in the scenes where he was running across (laughs) the country. (laughs) Yeah. Because he was wearing a hat too and had this long hair coming out. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, that's Forrest Gump when he was running across the country. (laughs) So it was a little, (laughs) so it was a little different look for Elvis Costello. I'm used to him being like a punk rock nerd kind of, (laughs) kind of, or like a Buddy Holly, I guess more of a punk rock Buddy Holly kind of, (laughs) kind of look. This was a, yeah, this was a neat, uh, a neat look for Elvis Costello in his third SNL appearance. And he said, so the other side, of summer was the first song he performed and then so like candy uh which was the second song performed that yeah, night my favorite um, yeah songs and it's it's significant too because it's another studio collaboration uh with paul mccartney i mean they seem, yeah, seem that, to Elvis album, seem to work well together with with legends with other legends well especially with somebody like mccartney because and i i think it was paul mccartney that that instigated the uh collaboration because I guess he felt he he wanted somebody acerbic, like like John Lennon, to bounce ideas off of. Because that's that's what made the Beatles so great was the two of them, you know, being on the same page and coming from the same place, but mood wise being a little bit opposed. So it's good to have that kind of push and pull. Mm-hmm. I mean, we anyone could argue this for for ages, but I'll just go on record saying that the Beatles solo output doesn't hold a candle to any of the the actual Beatles recordings. Because you don't have that person there saying, you know what, maybe instead of doing that there, try this. You know, maybe silly love songs isn't a great idea for a song. <laughs> <laughs> right. There's, there's less John, checks maybe, and maybe an album of Yeah. Maybe an album of screaming is not gonna is not gonna sell. Much as I love Plastic Ono band. Uh-huh. You know, I know, I realize why it's not a hit. <laughs> yeah, ex- exactly. <laughs> and I think so like Candy was significant for me because the, the six performances, the six songs that he performed over his three times as musical guest on SNL, I think "So Like Candy" was my favorite one because it was just, just there was just so so much heart. I think that he was singing with uh, that yeah, that that, that, was, that really there. stood out. Yeah, there's atmosphere, there's soul that that that's emanating from Elvis yep. Costello. So I really enjoyed that performance of "So Like Candy." Yeah, it's very it's very dynamic. Like as much as I love the attractions, they're they're kind of one thing. Just like blast you against the wall, punk sort of sound, which I love. But yeah, it's nice it's nice to have that uh, that dyna- dy- dynamism that he had with uh, that performance of So Like Candy as well. Yeah, he can he yeah. can do both with e- equal aplomb. Yeah, definitely. So in my in my book, he was out of six songs that he performed in SNL, I think he was six for six as far as quality. Yeah. And every, every, every single one of them uh, was enjoyable to me. And full disclosure, I'm not one who, 
who totally focuses hard on the musical guests. <laughs> There's some that stick out. A lot of times I'll get up and go yeah. get something to eat or go to the restroom or let my dogs outside oh, or same, something. Same here, but, yeah. but performances like these kind of keep me glued and especially something like So Like Candy, which was so atmospheric, kind of yeah. kept me glued to my screen. So Elvis Costello appeared again on the show in 1999 at actually the 25th anniversary show. Uh, yep. So you know he had a good relationship with the show by then. So what do you remember about about him appearing with the Beastie Boys on that show? Yeah, I remember I I didn't know anything about it because, I mean, the internet was around, but none of us, I shouldn't say none of us, I wasn't on it very much. And I really doubt there were any spoilers. Maybe there were, but I didn't know that was coming. Yeah, the Beastie Boys come out, they're playing Sabotage. It's like, all right, this is, it sounds like kind of a perfunctory version. And then we realize why. Because Elvis Costello is about to reprise his stunt from 1977. I'm sorry, ladies and gentlemen, but there's just really no reason to do this song here tonight. One, two, three, four! Yeah, it was great. It was almost verbatim of what of what he said yeah. when he when 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 he interrupted. It was uh, yeah, less than zero. So so yeah, I thought that was just such a great moment, and just just says a lot to me about Elvis Costello that he can he's willing to go on the show and have fun like that and reference something that happened twenty two years uh, prior. That was that was a really neat moment mm-hmm. uh, for me. And I bet the Beastie Boys yeah. were happy to have been <laughs> definitely happy to have been a part of that with Elvis Costello yeah, to be uh, to be attractions for an evening. And he's actually been quite prolific, so he he hasn't been a musical guest in over 30 years now, but he's been really prolific since his last official appearance as musical guest. Are there any, uh, just maybe a handful of standouts to you? Like, I know that's quite the span, but like, are there just some musical oh, highlights no from Elvis Costello in that span? Uh, Painted from Memory. Painted from Memory is a great album. His his most recent one, a boy, The Boy Named If, I just bought, and it's kind of a return to form. It's with the the attractions are back together, but the uh, the bass player, Bruce Thomas, isn't with them anymore. Apparently, there's a little too much bad blood between uh, he and Elvis. But Davey Farger, who was a member of Cracker, has been with them since, um, I think it's the early 2000s. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they're a fiery unit. Uh, going back to like 94, Brutal Youth was, was a return to form. And he did an album with uh, Alan Toussaint, the, uh, the famous New Orleans uh, piano player and guy that probably wrote and played on just about every record that came out of new orleans in the in the 50s and 60s all right yeah awesome so we urge definitely urge our listeners to go check out uh, some of his output some of the stuff that justin had just mentioned and elvis costello still going strong performing shows too he just announced yeah. he's doing a string of 10 shows in new york city in february of 2023 mm-hmm. where 200 unique songs are being planned so not a lot of repeats in those shows yeah. Do you have any plans on checking out any of those shows you know what? He was just in Toronto and I missed him. 
Oh, I, wow. I didn't even know he was coming. Like since since COVID, uh, I just haven't been paying attention. Yeah. So then someone will post online, oh, I saw so-and-so last night. Like, I didn't know they were coming to town. I would have gone to that. But even, you know, I say that, but even like now going to a concert, I'm still kind of, do I want to stand in a room full of people with or without masks? I agree with you. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know. I I might have done that for for Elvis Costello. Yeah. I probably would have kept kept myself masked the whole time but yeah I, i'm sorry i didn't get to see that show yeah so i think yeah, he's, it, he's still great he's still got it yeah he definitely has a lot of energy still and anybody who's in in or around the new york city area for those 10 shows might be worth checking out seems like he's really putting a lot of thought into those shows so what's your final case for elvis costello being in the snl hall of fame i'm gonna say for being part of one of the most notorious incidents in the show's history I mean, even people that don't even know who Elvis Costello is know about it. Uh, Proving to any doubters out there that the show is definitely live. And we'll say for being the first British punk performer, I put punk in quotes because as I mentioned, he was anything but a punk, but Mm -hmm. had a lot of similar sensibilities. Performer on the show, uh, I'd say the first punk band that played was probably Patti Smith in uh, 1976, but they were US, so we'll go with the first British punk band and honestly i don't think the patty smith group would call itself punk either that word eh, early 76 it was sort of i think it might have still kind of been up in the air yeah yeah and i think also in my opinion batting 100 percent or batting 1000 uh, as far as performance quality and songs performed i think he was six for six as far as yeah as far sure. as performance quality uh he has definitely performances that i would as an snl fan go back and watch um specifically uh for for his uh, musical performances so yeah thank you so much justin for joining me and very well said uh listeners take heed and consider elvis costello for the snl hall of fame Thank you so much, Justin Renwick and Thomas Senna. That was a, you know, a terrific conversation about the merits of Elvis Costello. Uh, Justin, you know a lot about Elvis Costello. Holy jeez. I think you and uh, Matt Ardell could go toe-to-toe. You know, uh, I, I would hate to see the two of you enter a steel cage because, unfortunately, only one would leave. Now, uh, Elvis Costello had that very special, infamous moment. Uh, He got to come back for a second act, and then he got to seal the deal with a third act, and then, you know, really bang home the argument with his appearance on the 40th anniversary. So I think that there is something to that, you know, collection that merits a, a pretty strong case for his inclusion in the SNL Hall of Fame. Some of you out there may be shaking your heads and saying, well, the incident is akin to Sinead O'Connor tearing the picture of the Pop. You know, it was a, it was a stunt. It was a, something that was unexpected and, you know, uncalled for. Sinead O'Connor, however, didn't get to come back and, and re-perform and, and show her chops and, you know, um, she's a tremendous artist. So uh, she didn't get that opportunity that Elvis Costello did. And I think that there is something to that. Now, that being said, 
I don't think that Mr. Costello is necessarily a first ballot Hall of Famer. Unless you are an absolute, you know, huge fan of his work, you, you, you might not vote him in the first time, especially when you look at all the other tremendous musical acts that have been ignored up until this point. I think that this is a, you know, probably a, a second or third ballot Hall of Famer. And uh, that doesn't besmirch you know, his uh, appearance on, on the ballot or his opportunity for enshrinement. It, it simply, you know, is a numbers game at some point, and it makes it very difficult. Um, that's what I have to say about that. Now, without further ado, why don't we listen to this infamous moment? This is Radio Radio from 1977 on the SNL Hall of Fame podcast. Once again, here's Elvis Costello. Calling Mr. Oswald with the swastika tattoo the girls are fake on some waiting I'm sorry, ladies and gentlemen, there's no reason to do this song here. Shining the light that dial doing anything my radio advised. Whenever one of those late night stations playing songs bring tears to my eyes, I was seriously thinking about adding the receiver when it switched because it's old. They're saying things that I can hardly believe. They really think we're getting out of control. Radio is a sad salvation. Radio is cleaning up the nation. Say you better listen to the vice of reason But they don't give you any choice Cause they think that it's treason So you have better do as you were told You better listen to the rhythm What about the hand that feeds them? What about that hand so bad?
so that's what all the fuss was about. It seems rather trivial now to hear when you, when you hear it, uh, but you can imagine part of the term being a fly on the wall and seeing all the chaos going on, you know, behind the scenes at SNL. Lorne must have been pulling his hair out. I can't imagine he likes to be surprised in that kind of way. Uh, so it's you know it's it's really quite fascinating, but I think that moment coupled with you know, his uh, supplementary performances and especially being invited to the 40th and, and getting a prime spot to perform Radio Radio really does tell you what Lorne and the gang at SNL feel about Elvis Costello. This was a uh, tremendous uh, amount of fun for me to listen to. I hope it was for you as well. So for Thomas Senna, and Matt Ardill, we would like to thank our guest, Justin Renwick. And please, before you leave, turn out the lights, because the SNL Hall of Fame is now closed. Thanks for listening to the SNL Hall of Fame podcast. Make sure to rate, review, share, and subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on social media at SNLHOF. This is Doug Denant saying, this is Doug Denant saying, see you next week. Podcasts and such.